Well, we're looking again at Mark's gospel, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1. Last week we were looking at verses 2 through 4, but didn't quite finish. So today we're going to look at verse 4 a little bit more closely. And so as we do that, I want to begin reading back at verse 1, just so you have all of it in your hearing. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The most urgent need in the Christian church is true preaching. He's right. Preaching today is weak. The pulpit is weak. We have weak men in weak pulpits preaching weak messages to weak members. And frankly, folks, that's an abomination. There are many churches that have completely revamped their ministries in an attempt to appeal to unbelievers. These churches are telling us that if you want to be successful, then you need to concentrate your energies in an agreeable, inoffensive environment. You must give unbelievers freedom, tolerance, and anonymity. You must always be positive. You must always be benevolent. And if you must have a sermon, they say keep it brief and amusing. Don't be preachy and authoritative. And above all, keep everyone entertained. Well, numerical growth is promised if your church follows this pattern. And if you ignore it, then you're doomed to decline. So the new norm for a church service is to have music and skits and rock and roll oldies and disco tunes and heavy metal, rap, dancing, comedy, clowns, mime artist, and stage magic. What is now missing? Preaching. It's now been replaced by men and women preachers preaching cute, amusing, brief talks geared at entertaining the masses. This is the user-friendly church. Listen to what some people are saying about the user-friendly church. One person said, there is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Another said, services at our church have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome, not drive them away. Another said, as with all clergymen, the answer is God. But this pastor slips him in at the end. And even then doesn't get heavy. No ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. 
He doesn't even use the H word. Call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as the old time religion, but with a third less guilt. Here's another. The sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hellfire. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It's sophisticated, urban, and friendly talk. It breaks all stereotypes. So the new rules are be clever, be informal, be positive, be brief, be friendly. Never loosen your necktie, never let them see you sweat, and never, never, never use the H word. John MacArthur writes, The weakness of the pulpit today does not stem from frantic cranks who harangue about hell. It is the result of men who compromise and who fear to speak God's word powerfully with conviction. The church is certainly not suffering from an overabundance of forthright preachers. Rather, it seems glutted with men-pleasers. He's right. God has called preachers to preach the word of God, not entertain the goats. Charles Spurgeon reminds us that preaching is not child's play. It's not a thing to be done without labor and anxiety. It is solemn work. Here's how Paul said it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And just narrowing in on that last phrase of working hard, that's one word in the Greek, and it means to toil and labor. It means to work to the point of fatigue and exhaustion. And he uses here the present tense to speak of them doing this every day, every week. They work hard. They labor. They exhaust themselves with preaching the word. Now, it's certainly obvious that some elders work harder than others. That's why the phrase is given there in 1 Timothy 5.17. But again, just think about that concept of hard work. It is hard work. It takes time to understand a text, a passage. It takes time to do the research. And you could find yourself very easily short-circuiting the process to make it easier on you, but what do you have from that is weak pulpits, weak preachers, weak people, We're not interested in any of that. We're interested that we would be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, Ephesians 6.10. We want to make sure that we're not those who are ashamed, but that we rightly divide the word of truth. We cut it straight. We're accurately handling it, and that takes hard work. John Piper writes, The hard work begins in preparation, long before the moment of delivery. Preachers often bear the burden weeks before a particular message, a weight that gets greater the week of and especially heavy the night before and the morning of. A pastor who doesn't sweat and strain at his study 
and teaching is not fulfilling his calling. And diligent word work is hard work when done well. Paul also said to another church over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, he said, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And that's the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 5, 17. Appreciate those who work hard, those who work to the point of exhaustion, and those who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and live in peace with one another. Christ's call to pastors is to labor in the feeding of the flock, and you do that through sound teaching. David Mathis said, part of what makes pastoring hard work is that we teach with a tether. We don't just sit down with a blank piece of paper or show up to address an attentive church and speak off the top of our heads. Unashamed workers rightly handle the word of truth. Week after week, day after day, the words we breathe out to feed the church are not our own thoughts on the matter. Christians have a book. And good pastors are happily tethered to this book, which is the most powerful, proven, life-changing book in the history of the world. Good pastors are unavoidably book men. Being men of the book demands headwork and sustained mental effort. We study. Many of us learn and reference the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, and before making applications, we first wrestle with what the text means and does not mean. And being men of the book requires heart work. Before turning to tell others what the book says, we first put ourselves under its teaching for repentance and faith. Oh, beloved, how I agree wholeheartedly with that. It has always been my conviction that the church understand the word of God and the preacher's role is to preach the depths of God, not to preach cute little Bo Peep messages that make you feel good, that apply just to your felt needs, but to teach you the word. You and I cannot grow unless we understand what the Bible says and what it means by what it says. Many times, many people reading the Bible, they will just read it. They never answer any questions that they may have or the text may impose upon them. They don't understand any of the terms, any of the history, any of the culture, and then they want to apply it to their lives. And most of the time, they miss the application because they didn't do the hard work of trying to understand what the Bible means, how it is interpreted. We've got a long period of time to gap right here, this gap that we've got to bridge. But we tend to also come at the Bible with a Western thought. And that's not the way you approach the Scriptures. This was not written today. This was not written in America. You've got to study the culture, study the time, study the history. If you want to understand the Bible... But you're doing the first step, and I trust you're still doing it with us as we read through the Bible, and particularly the New Testament this year. I hope that you're doing that. And you should be in the book of Acts now, I think starting chapter 11 tomorrow, I believe. 
But before the message is ever preached, it has to be internalized. And sometimes that internalization that occurs uh, occurs weeks before you even get to the text, and then once you begin to get into the text, it begins to take you apart as you're trying to take the Scripture apart to understand it. It's kind of like what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6. In his case, he's seeing the Lord. In our case, we're seeing Him in the Word. And as we begin to understand what His Holy Word means, we become undone. We crumble. We come to pieces. Because we know with the truth that we're seeing right there, and what we're learning about a holy and righteous God is that He sees us. And He sees us from the inside. That very area, that very part of our life that tends to be private, and we can choose not to share things about our lives with others, even with those who are close to us, because we want to maintain some sense of privacy, but yet God reads your thoughts. God knows every word you will ever utter before you utter it. He has knowledges, as the scripture would say. And David coined it this way in Psalm 139, whether I rise up or whether I lie down, you're right there with me. And this knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain this knowledge. It's too deep. And I equate that with really studying any of the depths of the Scripture, and you think of even the simplicity of it, but also the depth with it. And it's all depending on how you approach it. You can come at it very lightly and take it in like a baby with milk, and that's all you're concerned about with the milk of the Word. But then you come along later, and as you've been feeding on the milk of the Word, you find out that's really not enough. You need more than that. So you begin to start taking in the meat of the Word. And see, the person who takes in the meat of the Word, this is the person who is reading the Word daily, studying it to the best of his ability. Now, I realize that not everybody can study the Bible. Not everybody has the resources or the tools. But we have less excuse today than we've ever had. There are so many resources available today to help you study the Bible. It's, it's almost embarrassing to sit here and say that I don't know how to study my Bible. You know, years ago in my lifetime, after I came to Christ at 19, I went to a church, and I'm sitting there under the teaching of the Word, and I finally went to uh, the pastor, and I asked him, I said, do you have any kind of class that would teach me how to study the Bible? I love listening to you, but I want to know how to do that. I want to know how you arrive at what you arrive at. And I don't want a study Bible just telling me everything. I want to know how to do that. So for a long time, I've refused to use a study Bible because I didn't want it presupposing thoughts in my mind ahead of time. I wanted to read this myself. I wanted to study this myself. And of course, I would need some helps to do this. But I just didn't want to do what some people do in school. Yeah, they're given a book, and in the back of the book it has the answers. And what do they go and look at? They go and look at the answers. It's nice to know the answers, but wouldn't you like to know the process to get to the answers? And that's really what Bible study is. It's going through that process. And every preacher of the Word, if he's faithful to the Word, he's going to allow the Word to do its work in him long before he gets in the pulpit and begins to apply it to the congregation. 
is allowed his heart to be invaded with Scripture. And I would certainly say this is true of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a man of conviction. John the Baptist was that voice in the wilderness. He certainly was not a weak preacher with a weak message. It tells us there in verse 14, or rather verse 4, that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This man was a prophet. He was the forerunner of Christ. And if you look there back at verses 2 and 3, Mark tells us that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah spoke. And not just Isaiah, but Malachi as well. If you look there at verse 2, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This was John the baptizer that he was talking about. This was given 700 years after, after 700 years of prophecy, and then all of a sudden he shows up on the scene. Mark takes this from two Old Testament passages. You had the first line is from Malachi 3.1. The last line is from Isaiah 40 and verse 3, and then he merges them together. And he says that before the Messiah would come, God would send a herald. And that herald's responsibility would be to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And as I said, that herald would be John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So last time we began looking or meeting the forerunner of Christ, and we saw there in verse 4 his revealing. It says there that, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, and according to Luke 180, this is where he also grew up. He spent the duration of his ministry along the Jordan River, which was about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. And for Mark to speak to his audience and to tell his audience that John appeared in the wilderness was a constant reminder to them of the exodus from Egypt and their entrance into the Promised Land. Mark also says what he did in the wilderness. He said he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. And now we begin to look at his preaching. This is what he was called to do. This is his whole purpose. And this is what all preachers are called to do. In the words of Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.1, preach the word. The word preaching is the Greek word caruso. It occurs about 60 times in the New Testament, and it means to proclaim as a herald. And this is what Mark is saying by identifying John the Baptist. He was a herald who came to announce the good news before Jesus' arrival. He was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. So last week we talked about this, and I deviated just a little bit from it to talk about preaching. And I gave you a definition from Martin Lloyd-Jones who asked the question, what is preaching? And he answered by saying it's logic on fire. This was something that he would say uh, most often. 
Preaching is logic on fire. It's eloquent reason. It's theology coming through a man who is on fire. And this certainly described John the Baptist. Preaching has always been the means that God has used to proclaim his word. True of John the Baptist, also true of others, true today. There are many reasons why we preach and teach God's word. And first, I would certainly say because this is the response to the call of God. And secondly, I would say it's being obedient. Being obedient to the heavenly calling, not just to go, but to say what he tells you to say. And it's not very hard for a preacher to understand what God wants him to, wants him to say because he's given him a book. And it'll take all your lifetime and more to preach everything in this book. But God does tell him what to preach. And that's what we focused on last time. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy, this is what you are to do. And this charge comes... From God, even the Lord Jesus Christ is coming from the one who will judge the living and the dead. He wants you to preach his word. And the word preach is an imperative, which means it's a command. He was commanded to preach, and the term word is speaking of the entire written word of God, the complete revealed truth that's contained in the Bible. In fact, if you were to chase this down in the New Testament, you would find that preaching the word would also be like preaching Paul's teaching or the apostles' doctrine. For example, in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul told Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the very things that I'm telling you, you tell that to others. You preach that to others. In fact, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13 that the word of God that you're to preach is also called sound doctrine. Sound meaning healthy, doctrine meaning teaching. He told Titus the same thing. Speak sound doctrine. Speak healthy teaching. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he called the word of God the glorious gospel of the blessed God. He also called it in 1 Timothy 2.7, faith and truth. And then in 1 Timothy 4.13, he called it the scripture. This is what Paul referred to in Acts 20 and verse 27 as the whole counsel of God. So the preacher is to preach the Word, which is the entire Word, all Scripture. He is to preach the whole counsel of God. Some other names that would be given for it, the angel called it the whole message of this life. In Acts 5.20, Paul referred to it 
as the message of this salvation in Acts 13.26. He also called it in Romans 10.8, the word of faith that we are preaching. Peter called it the utterances of God in 1 Peter 4.11. Paul also told the Philippians in Philippians 2.16 that this is the word of life. This is the word of life. And beloved, since this is the case, and this is the word of the living God, then we are to preach every word. That right there, that statement alone can just tell you with all the abundance of translations that we have out there of the Bible that there would be some that would take you away from preaching the entire word because they're not set up that way. For example, some of you may be holding a Bible that would be considered an essential literal translation, which means that every word does matter. Every word is translated from the Hebrew and the Greek so that it would be able to translate into English or the respective language, but they would study every word. But if you have a version that is considered dynamic equivalent, it wouldn't do that. It wouldn't be giving you it by word-for-word translation. It would give you a thought-for-thought translation. And I'm not necessarily saying that these are bad. I'm just trying to say is that you need to understand what kind of translation you have. If you have an ESV or you have an NASB or a King James or a New King James, all of those are essential literal translations. But if you use like an NIV, that would be a dynamic equivalent. You want to know more about that, you can certainly go on the church's website. We have a page under links, and there's a little chart on there that talks about the translations and where they fall. But it is helpful for you to know that. And it's also good, though, for you to read outside of the translation that you're using to help you with elucidating the words. You and I speak English. Some of you may speak other languages. If you're a baby, I'd call it gibberish. But The point is, is, as you study the Word, as you read the Word, it's okay to read some other translations, but you need to just understand what you are reading. So as we look again at this idea of preaching, I want to give you four things that preaching actually does. And it's certainly not limited to this list of four. There's many other things, I'm sure. But there's some things that we need to understand. And when we preach the Word of God, there's one thing that's being prevented. And what is being prevented is ignorance. Stupidity, if I could put it that way. I'm using a biblical word, by the way. It says in Ephesians 5.17... It talks about understanding what the will of the Lord is. And it says, do not be unwise. You know what unwise means? Stupid. Don't be stupid. You don't have to be stupid about the will of the Lord because the will of the Lord is contained right here in the Scripture. What you need to do is come to the Scripture. And when you come to the Scripture, you need to understand that this is the Word of God, and that's the thought you have in your mind as you come to study the Bible, or as you come to read the Bible. You understand that this is Scripture. And so, if the Word of God is preached faithfully, then it's going to prevent you from being ignorant about what the Bible says. 
You've heard people at times say, why do we have to major so much on doctrine? Well, here's the answer, because doctrine matters. When we teach doctrine, we are laying the foundation for proper behavior, and we are preventing ignorance of what God has written. Don't you want to know what God's Word says? Well, again, how you understand what God says is first you have to read it. You have to read the Bible and read it consistently and systematically. And then, of course, if you want to know what it means by what it says, then you have to go a little deeper. You have to go beyond your reading. When Paul went to Ephesus, Acts 18.11 tells us that he settled there for a year and six months. You know what he did during that time? He taught them the Word of God. A year and six months. He later told the elders of the Ephesian church in chapter 20 of Acts, verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. So for that year and six months, that year and a half, as he was there teaching them the Word of God, he did not hold back. He declared unto them the entire counsel of God. And it's beyond my understanding and beyond my reason why a pastor would not do that. What's your hurry? Why do you got to do a topic today, a topic next week, a different topic the week after, another topic after that? You've got everybody in the Bible, and they're all over the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against topics. We've done some. But I think you would benefit more if you were looking at a text of Scripture consistently every week and a text of Scripture that fell in the same book and you looked at it consistently, systematically, you followed the flow, you followed the logic, you followed exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted you to see, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, taking all the way to the end of the book. You know, some people have never read an entire epistle or an entire book of the Bible. And then when they want to talk about Scripture memory, well, that's certainly... Out, the, out of the question, and if they do talk about it, they jokingly say, well, I know Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Ah, and I say, but young child, where is that verse at? Where is it at in the Bible? Now, I know that there is nothing inspirational about chapters and verses, verse numbers, chapter numbers, or anything like that. It just helps us to maneuver around the Bible. But since that's the case and you're learning where things are and you're learning verses, you might as well learn where they occur, right? Especially if you're going to direct somebody to that passage. You say, well, I, I know the verse, but I'm not really sure where it occurs. Well, here's something that happens when you use the same Bible. When you use the same Bible and you read from the same Bible every day, guess what's going to happen? Your mind is taking a picture of the page, you're getting familiar with where things are in your Bible and where they are on the page, so much so that if someone asked you, where does it say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you say, well, that's 1 John 1, 9. It's over on the right-hand side of the page, halfway down. That's where it is in my Bible. 
You take a picture of it. And if you read it repetitiously, that's just going to solidify it in your mind. And if you're reading it repetitiously and you're memorizing it and then, then you come to that opportunity to meditate on it. Meditation is just taking that passage, those verses that you've memorized, and running them over and over and over in your mind. But you know what's great about doing meditation is when you understand what the passage means. Or you're working through a passage and you, you're trying to follow the flow of thought from this author. First Timothy 3 and verse 2 tells us that all pastors, all elders in the church are to be skilled at teaching. They might not all teach at the same amount of time, but they all are to be skilled. They all are to be trained to teach. And if that's the case... What are they being trained in? Well, they're being trained in the Word of God. Titus 1.9 says of an elder that he is to hold fast the faithful Word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. In order to do that, you've got to know what the Word says. You cannot exhort and convict anyone on an issue of whether they're contradicting the Scripture or not, if you don't know the Scripture. And besides that, you're not the only one to know it that way. The people you're speaking to is to know it that way. Beloved, this, this is why it's such a conviction of mine to teach expositionally through the Bible. When I came to Christ, and I was describing that to you about going to my pastor and asking him, do you offer a class on how to study the Bible? And my answer I got was so heartbreaking. I literally started weeping right there in front of them, and I walked out of the room. I finished the service. I walked out of the church, and I never went back. I was so discouraged by, my, by the answer I got. I was told that, you know, we have a class in Sunday school for this. We have a class for this. We have training union or discipleship training for this. I don't care about that. All I wanted to know is how to study the Bible. You're up there exhorting believers to get into the Word, to study their Bible, but you're not telling them how to do it. That's like telling a newborn baby, say, hey, here's some milk. It's over on the counter. You go over there and get it. Get it yourself. And then feed yourself. Baby can't do that. Baby can't even hold the bottle yet. Let alone feed themselves. But that's what it felt like. And so it put me on a, a journey. A mission. I didn't, I didn't just leave that alone. It put me on a journey to figure out the answer to the question. And so I went to the bookstore. And I started looking for books. Now you have to understand... No internet. There is no internet during this time. Computers were just becoming, you know, desktop computers were just starting to come around. I didn't use a computer back then. I did everything by hand. I'd take all my books and spread them all out on the table, open them up to the page, dealing with the text I'm dealing with, and I had to sit here and read each one of them like that. 
When the computer came out, I would have to say I had a horrible experience with it, but I pressed through, and here was the horrible experience. I spent the entire day at the church working on a computer. Those were the days of DOS. There was no such thing as Windows. And I had been studying all day, and I had been typing everything in there. I had WordPerfect for DOS. And all of a sudden, the most tragic thing happened. I lost my message, and I could not get it back. I had wasted the entire day using a stupid computer. I call it that. You call those smartphones, you call them stupid too, don't you? But I lost it, and I had a good buddy there with me who knew a lot about computers. He couldn't even retrieve it back. And I said, wow, if I'm going to do something like this, I've got to have some kind of way to back this up. And even to this day, I'm using electronic device right here for my notes. But guess what? Here's a printed copy of what I'm saying. Because I have had up here the iPad freeze up. I've had the iPad go blank. I had one time where it did all of that. And while I'm preaching, I'm pulling up the internet because I had put my notes already on the sermon page it just didn't have the sermon yet because I was preaching it right then so I I go all the way over there to that page and I hit pdf and boom it popped up and I had my notes back I don't know how in the world I did that to maintain the little bit of brief it wasn't silent I just kept going but the the brief time to do that but we we have all these things we have all these devices and so back then you know we didn't have all that stuff and so you'd find a book here, and you'd find a book there, and, and if you found a book, it would have just a little bit of information in it, and then if you find another book, it would have so much information, you didn't quite understand what he was telling you. And then I would find preachers that would talk about it, and just over time, things begin to click. And these are things that we've taught over the years here. Beloved, I have the same desire you do. I want to understand what the Bible says. I want to hide this word in my heart, and I want to be obedient to God to do what it says, no matter how painful it may be in my life. And I know you want that too. And so we have to go beyond the superficial. We have to go beyond just reading it. We have to get to the point where we're actually studying it. And again, the preacher, as Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, he's not in the pulpit merely to give knowledge and information to people. He is to inspire them. He is to enthuse them. He is to enliven them and send them out glorifying in the Spirit. You know, I've, when I've sat under a preacher and they gave the sense of the Word and it made sense in the interpretation, it was absolutely clear. You walk out going, wow, that was good. God's Word is good because now you just experience the meat of the Word and you got the understanding. And you walked out going, okay, now I know what to do with this. And it may take me some days on some areas of this, but here's something I can immediately do with what I now know. You know, we don't want to come in here and just sit in church and watch me up here burn and tell you all these things, and then we don't do anything with it after we're done. 
But I'll tell you, beloved, preaching will prevent ignorance if it's done right, if it's true biblical preaching. Second thing, preaching promotes maturity. It promotes maturity. God has left for us evangelists and pastor teachers in the church for the purpose of maturing the saints for the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. He gave some as apostles. We don't have apostles today. They ended with the 12. 12 being, you know, Judas is gone, but now Matthias takes his place. So we're back up to 12. Of course, the apostle Paul was certainly an apostle. Mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15, as well as many other of his 13 epistles. And he says, and there are some prophets. We don't have prophets today. There were prophets in the early church, but there are no prophets today. The office of prophet has ceased. And so what do you have left? And he says, some evangelists. Evangelists were not those who went to churches where people were already gathered and they were saved. Not even to go to preach a revival meeting as we do in Western society. You know what an evangelist was? An evangelist was a church planner, a missionary. An evangelist went to a place where Christ was not named, there were no churches, and they preached the gospel. People were saved. They stayed there long enough for God to raise up a pastor to teach and and to care for that flock, and then he would move on and do it in another city. And that's the last group you have. It says pastors and teachers, but in Greek, this is one office, not two. It's poimen kai didaktikos. And it literally means a teaching shepherd. So you have evangelists and you have teaching shepherds. And what are they for? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. The idea of equipping, it's a medical term. And it's just like, you know, when you break a bone and you go to an uh, orthopedic surgeon, what do they do? They bring the bone back together, right? Remember the first time I experienced that with my dad? He had fell off a ladder and the doctor said, hold his arm for me. After he jerked it, I about passed out. I couldn't believe he had me hold his arm while he jerked it, and I heard the pop, you know, the bone going back in place. Mm, that was interesting. But that's what they do. They, they set it straight. And that's what evangelists and pastor teachers are to do in the church is to set things straight for the saints so that they can do the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but we're speaking truth in love. There's our goal. This is what we're after. It's not just pumping a bunch of information at you, but it's to bring you to the place to where you genuinely love one another. And you speak the truth in love. We preach and teach God's Word because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us it's beneficial for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So preaching prevents ignorance. It prevents or promotes maturity. It also prevents false doctrine. When we systematically teach what God's Word means, we're preventing it from being perverted by false teachers. And 
Paul noted that his greatest fear in Acts 20 and verse 28 was that after his departure, verse 29, savage wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He warned them about this so they could see it when it happened. You know, this was the work that Titus had to make sure that the elders at Crete were duly qualified. In chapter 1 and verse 9, he answers here when it says that the elder is to be holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. It says in verse 10 that there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. He says, that's got to stop. And the only way that's going to stop is for you to know the Scripture and to be able to contradict them, correct them, teach them. Thomas Watson said, it is by the ear, it was by the ear by our first parents listening to the servant that we lost paradise, and it's by the ear, by the hearing of the word, that we get to heaven Hear the word of God. And last, I would say, preaching is commanded of all preachers. Peter said it this way in Acts 10.42. He says, God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is He who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We already heard 2 Timothy 4.2 where Paul commands Timothy to preach the word. Titus 2.15 adds it this way, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And that's how Titus was to look at this. And since Scripture says so much about this, we're not to forsake it. Especially when the culture is rejecting it. Because the world does not want to hear good biblical preaching. And it appears that the church is willing to accommodate them. But churches must return to the Bible as the word of the living God. They must preach it with the divine authority. They must follow the example of past prophets and preachers. And in following their example, going back to Mark 1.4, They must preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the element that's missing. This is the element that's missing in the gospel presentation. It's more comfortable to talk about the benefits of the gospel. It's not comfortable talking about the judgment of God. The longer I live, the longer that the Lord gives me the opportunity to think and breathe and to preach and so forth, the more and more I think about this, our gospel presentation needs to begin with hell. We need to talk about hell. Isn't that what you're trying to get them to flee from? Then talk about it. 
Talk about hell and sin. Easily you can talk about sin if you talk about hell because that's the punishment for sin. Right? Those who refuse to repent, continue to embrace their sin, what are they in danger of? Hell. But unfortunately, we want to appease people. We don't want people mad at us. I'm not saying make them mad at you. But if they get mad, let it be that the word they're getting mad at, not you, that and how your behavior is and how you love them to Christ. Because you can be offensive with that information very easy. So your attitude has a lot to say here as well as you're loving them to Christ. If you never repent, you'll never be forgiven. What's he say in verse 4? He preached a baptism of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. So again, if you don't repent, you're not going to be forgiven. You say, well, what does it mean to repent? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because I want to define it for you. Let me have you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want you to look at verses 9 and 10 because there is a definition of repentance in that verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Notice what Paul says. He says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. If you want to write in your Bible, you write under there, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That is repentance. You're turning from sin. That's idolatry, right? And you're turning to God. See, early on in my life, I did some things that I didn't like. And I wanted to stop. But I really didn't have any motivation to stop other than my health. Which is usually a good motivator. I'm talking about a teenager now, okay? But when I quit these things, or that thing that I'm thinking of... It was, that was it. I just stopped, but I didn't turn to God. I didn't turn to Christ. So I certainly couldn't call that repentance just because I stopped doing something I shouldn't be doing. I never turned to Christ. So some people want to you know, clean up their life first before they come to Christ. And I have a better idea. Come to Christ, let Him clean up your life. But repentance, according to 2 Timothy 2.25, this is something that God grants to those who are in opposition to the Word of God, which is true of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever is in opposition to the Word, whether they realize it or not. And whatever this repentance thing is that we're seeing here, this is what leads to life. Eternal life. So without it, there is no life. There's no forgiveness. 
Listen to what the people said on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Acts 2.37, after Peter had just preached the word of God to them. He told them that they murdered their Messiah. He charged them with murdering their Messiah. It says that they were pierced to the heart and they said, what shall we do? What can we do about this? They come to realize that what Peter was saying was true. They crucified their Messiah. And Peter said this, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, he wasn't requiring baptism in order for you to be saved. Baptism was this outward display. We're going to talk about baptism next week. But it was an outward display of what went on in the heart. It was a public testimony before lost people, before the world, before other believers, before the church, that you have made a commitment to Christ and you're following Christ. The word he uses here for repent is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia is more than just a change of mind. It's also a change of heart. A change of that causes you to hate your sin and forsake it. In the words of Romans 12.9, it is abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. A.W. Tozier said it this way, it's turning around from our evil ways in order to look to Jesus. So you're coming to that place under the hearing of the gospel to where you see how sinful your sin is and you hate that sin. You hate this from which you are separated from Christ and you forsake it. You abandon it and you turn 100% to Christ. That's repentance. But just saying, you know, Lord, I'm sorry. That's just like a, a kid getting caught by his parents. He was told not to do something, and all of a sudden he gets caught and says, well, you know, I'm sorry. Has no contrition whatsoever. Charles Spurgeon, he preached on repentance week after week. Somebody came to him and asked him, when are you going to quit preaching on repentance? He said, when you repent. A.W. Tozer said, A man who truly comes to God in repentance and contrition of heart does not work up a defense on the basis that he has not broken every law and every commandment. Remember, an outlaw is not a man who has broken all the laws of his country. He may actually have ignored and flouted and violated only a few. The bandit Jesse James may have broken only a couple of laws, those that say you shall not kill and you shall not steal, but he was a notorious outlaw with a price on his head, even though there were thousands of other laws on the books which he had not violated. Tozer says, friend, when I come before my God as an outlaw, returning home as the prodigal, returning from the pig pen, I will not be dickering and bargaining with God about the sins that I did not commit. I will not even be conscious of those. For the fact that I have broken any of God's laws or committed any sins will so overwhelm me that I will go before God as though I were the worst sinner in all the wide world. 
like I said, you have the same response Isaiah had when he had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 6. And he saw that glorious vision and heard the worship coming from the seraphim. And he said, I can't utter that. I have a filthy mouth. And the people that I live with, they have filthy mouths. None of us can worship God like the seraphim are worshiping. None of us can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts because we're filthy. We're wicked. We don't understand the holiness of a righteous God because we're so unholy and so unrighteous. So beloved, if you're coming to Christ in just a few moments as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper and you're sitting here comparing yourself to other people as you pray and you're saying, well, I'm not like this person and I didn't do that and haven't murdered anybody and I don't hate anybody at present and, and you're just going down this litany, but yet maybe you've been a fornicator. Maybe you've been an adulterer. Maybe you've had wicked thoughts. Maybe you haven't been entertaining the right kind of thoughts and you've got that going in your mind. Maybe you've got covetousness on your heart. Maybe you're jealous about your neighbor. Your, your neighbor doesn't work half as hard as you do and they have more than you have and you're struggling and you're, you're driving a car that needs a lot of work. Presently it needs battery and gas uh, or whatever it may be, you know. Don't come to God like that. Confess your sin. And don't sit here and say, I don't have any. Because we all deal with it. We all struggle with it. And it may be a fleeting thought that you've entertained for a couple minutes and you finally caught it and you said, Lord, help me with this. Help me not to meditate on this. Replace that with your word. Or maybe, maybe you weren't quite honest in a situation and the words you chose to, talk, to, to use to talk about it uh, were misleading. Maybe you weren't lying, but they were misleading in your story. Made others think something else. That's not true. Embrace Him. Embrace Him. And with going back to Mark 1, 4 and, and hearing what He's preaching, this baptism of repentance, my question to you, my question to me, have we repented? Are we repenting? You know, repentance is the way of life. For a child of God. It's not just that you just repented one time and you received Christ and you never repent again. In fact, I found it to be true that you repent a lot. It's the way of life. So have you come to that place where you hate your sin? I mean, you literally hate it. If that's not the view you have about your sin, you need to repent. See, we tend to think when we talk about repentance, we're just talking about people coming to Christ for the first time. No, repentance is a way of life. After you come to Christ, you will still have to repent of things that you fall into, of sin that you commit, things that you say, the tone that you use, the attitude that you use, sinful anger, 
We know that there's such thing as that because he says, be angry and do not sin. So that tells me that there is righteous anger. Every time you're mad, is it righteous anger? Has it got a mixture of you in it? Are you angry because you got violated? Or are you angry because God was violated in what was said? You're not worried about you. I know God could take care of his reputation, but it still made you angry, but in a righteous way. Don't you get angry when you hear politicians using the Bible to promote their agenda and they misinterpret it like Gavin Newsom, governor of California, putting on a billboard for abortions and he puts a gospel text up there as if the Bible's okay with this. The Bible's giving you permission for this. That's an abomination. And he will have to deal with that. But beloved, as we come to the table this morning, 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. Prove ourselves. And so I want to call you to do that this morning. I want to call you to examine your heart. I want to call, call you to examine your motive as to why you would participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. You know, there was motives in 1 Corinthians 11 that they used, and one was coming drunk, one was coming for more food. You know, that's, that's what they were in. And, you know, here's, here's one of the ways that you can know if your kids are ready to take the Lord's Supper. Ask them a simple question, what is it? They say it's a meal or a snack, they're not ready. Because that's not a meal and a snack. Not much to that, is there? But beloved, as we come to the table, let the Holy Spirit bring all this to a conclusion in your mind this morning. You're here because you were under the preaching of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit opened up your eyes. Amen. So you're in the right place. And I promise you, I will preach it. And if I can't, I'll leave. That's my commitment. I will preach the word until I can't do it anymore. And even if it empties the room, if that's what it's got to be. Because I'll tell you, Isaiah preached to empty houses, a desolate land. He was told, he was asking, how long do you want me to, to do this? Until there are no more inhabitants in the land of Israel. Wow. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your word and the privilege for us to come and to sit under it this morning. We pray now as we have the wonderful opportunity to remember your death, burial, and resurrection in the Lord's Supper, that we would come before you humbly, and that we would turn from our sinfulness, and that we would embrace your word. And Lord, I just pray, bring to our hearts and our minds uh, those things that we have entertained, those things that we have done that maybe we haven't fully repented of, but you're calling us to it now. And I pray that we will follow faithfully and obediently. We thank you for our time together today, Lord. We don't treat it lightly. And we thank you that we just had this time to worship together. Be exalted, Lord. 